lost in the dusty, dog-eared pages of American criminal history. Join us as we relive another gruesome, grisly, gripping tale of murder, mischief, and mayhem. Created and written by Justin Vior. This series is an anthology of -of turn-of-the-century banner headline cases before the days of high-tech forensic criminology. America's chilling, appalling, yet intriguing heritage of murder. Tonight's episode, Young Skeeky, Old Sparky, and J. Edgar, Episode 3. Welcome back. Let's get back to our story with the ongoing search for the five-year-old Skiki who'd been taken from his crib on a quiet springtime night by a heartless local, demanding a ransom for the tyke's return. After one aborted attempt, complicated by hundreds of nosy neighbors, the distraught father, Bailey Cash Sr., was finally able to make the ransom drop-off, $10,000 in a shoebox by a small orange grove on the edge of town. The hope was that the boy would be released and thus reunited with his parents. But as searchers combed the town and then frantically searched the nearby evergreen pine forests, even the glades themselves, one day turned into three. And when the boy failed to appear, hope faded and people feared the worst. As the prior episode concluded, the Dade County Sheriff was left shaking his head at the incompetence of the federal agents who had taken charge of a matter in his local jurisdiction. He'd watched them interrogate three improbable suspects, and this was getting embarrassing. The five-year-old cash boy was still missing. They knew the kidnapper had to be local, someone right there in the Princeton community, hiding in plain sight. So using his horse sense and knowledge of the townsfolk, Sheriff Coleman realized that every major event in the case, the kidnapping itself, plus the finding of the three scrawled ransom notes, had taken place in a four-block area of town. That pointed to a local traveling on foot. He quietly began making inquiries on his own. Hi, Sheriff Coleman. Fill her up for you. Oh, well, please. Now, thanks, young fella. Oh, could you do the windows there, too? They are covered with insect guts. Always are in these parts. (laughs) Hey, absolutely. Now, uh, Mr. McCall and Mr. Wright working today? Frankie McCall don't work here. (laughs) He hardly works at all. But Harry's inside in the garage. You can go on in. Excuse me? You Harry Wright? Yes, sir, Sheriff. Uh, You got a minute. I don't mean to take you away from your work there now. That looks pretty complicated. (laughs) No, no, this old truck can wait, bad rotor. I guess you're still around on the Skiggy case. Find him yet? Uh, Yeah, we are still looking. Let's hope for the best. You see, I wanted to talk to you and Frank McCall some more on that. I know as you two found the third note. Now, you did good on that, bringing it straight to the authorities. I think McCall is driving today. Fruit truck. Oh, I see. Now, the fella you said you saw in the darkness that night behind the station? No, that were McCall who saw him, not me. But it was dark that night. Hell yeah. Frank must have better eyes than I got. I didn't see the man. I tell you what. I want you and Frankie to meet me here tonight, late, after closing. Around the same time of the night the note was found? We'll kind of reenact things so we can examine it step by step. I'm just wondering if you missed something. Something that'll help us bring that little boy back home. Anything we can do. I'll tell Frank we'll be here. Excuse me, Sheriff. Your patrol car's ready. Sheriff Coleman brought a deputy along with him as he met Wright and McCall after midnight in front of the Sinclair filling station. Evening, Sheriff Coleman. Well, evening, boys. Uh, thanks for coming out so late. Well, I don't care for driving at night. 
Uh, so brought my deputy along. Uh, Frank McCall, you were the one who gave the FBI fellas that help on that third ransom note. That's me. Oh, we appreciate that assistance. Now, now, Mr. Wright told you I want to reenact what you boys experienced that night the note was found. I know you told the story a couple of times before, but every detail could be important in finding that boy. We're happy to run through it again with you, Sheriff. Anything we can do to help. FBI agents had cleared Wright and McCall, felt they were square-dealing young men. But the sheriff had his doubts. Okay, now I know that you, Frank, you found the third note over in the doorway of the office, uh, but we'll get to that. So why don't we just start from right before you drove up to the station that night? Now go slow, don't leave out anything. Well, let me tell it, Harry. I, I tell it better than you. Coleman had noticed that Franklin McCall, the former high school athlete and big man on campus, enjoyed being the center of attention. Feeling like he was an important part of a police investigation stroked his ego. And it was Tuesday night, Sheriff. Actually, an hour or so past midnight, so Wednesday morning. Midnight was the time Bailey was supposed to drive out and deliver the ransom money to the kidnapper. Bailey Cash, Skeegee's father? Right. Everyone in town knew about it, knew what was going on, so I thought I should stay out of the way, not be underfoot like them others. So I stayed home that evening. Oh, with your wife. Uh, her name's uh, Claudine, as I recall. No, she was visiting her friends up in Jacksonville. I had the house to myself. But after midnight, curiosity got the best of me, I guess, so I borrowed my pa-in-law's truck. Joe Hilliard, he vouched for me on that, and drove over to Bailey's filling station and asked the fellas there what was going on. I was there with the guys when Frank drove up. And I needed gas for the truck. And that was the only reason my father-in-law let me use it, to fill her up. Stingy old bastard. I, I didn't want to bother Bailey at his station, which was closed anyway. So I told Harry, get in, and we drove over here to Sinclair. That's excellent. Now, what time was that, would you say? Oh, had to be about... It had to be about 2 a.m., I'd say. So we drove on down the street here, and Harry's in the passenger seat, and I pulled the truck right up to the pump. Right here. Ah, and you turned the engine off. I'd just done that, right when I stopped the truck. Are headlights still on or, or off? On. I remember because I walked in front of him when I came around the truck to head for the office. Okay, and the, uh, your truck, he was facing uh, west toward the moon? Uh, where was the moon in the sky then? The moon? It was over there, on my side of the truck, above the trees. And right before Harry opens his door and goes to get out, well, that's when I seen something moving over there on the side of the station, standing there, watching us like he didn't expect no one to be here when the station was closed. Like we surprised him in the middle of doing something. Okay, now describe to me exactly what you saw, Frank. He was medium height. I couldn't see the face or nothing except it looked like he had a beard, dark pants. It, it looked like a fella I'd seen around once or twice before since Skiggy was taken, but he kept his distance, and I call out to Harry, there's somebody out there. I didn't see him, though. Too dark. I thought McCall was just seeing things. But he was there. I saw him move in the shadows, darted around the side of the station, around back. So I ran back there while Harry went inside the office to get a flashlight. I didn't see nobody in the field in back of the station when I got there. It was too dark. Maybe he was in the shadows watching me, but I wasn't going to stay to find out. If he was the kidnapper, I weren't going to mess with him. So I come back around to the front, and that's when I found the note in the doorway there. Show me. Let's go on over to the office. It was there, right there. I stepped right on it. 
The paper was crumpled up like the kidnapper jammed it in the space underneath the door when he seen our Chuck pulling up. Now, yeah, that, that would make sense. And now, Mr. Wright, would you say you went into the office first, alone, but didn't notice a note on the floor? Nope, too dark. Front of the station was dark, no lights on in the office. I must have just walked right over it. Now, Harry, you work here at the station regularly now, correct? You know the grounds pretty well, the garage, office, pump area. I want you to take my deputy around the side of the station where Frankie saw this fella, and then back where he run off when Frankie gave chase. You give my deputy a physical description of the grounds. Hey, deputy, hey, you take any notes you need. Sure, deputy. Come on, I'll show you. Oh, Frank, the FBI fellas, they said you were a big help to them. Your friend Harry doesn't strike me as an observant type like you, so I think you're the one who can be instrumental of this whole part of this investigation, since you're more on the ball than your friend. You know what I mean? Sure, Sheriff Coleman, I understand. Now, a Frampy Braxton, he's a buddy of yours, right? Yeah, kind of. We know each other pretty good. Now, I know it must have been rough on you to give his name to the Fed Boys, but you were just being honest. You saw someone in the dark there at an important event related to this investigation, and you had to tell the truth. You didn't want to just keep something from the Feds, even if it might finger your friend. Right. The problem is, well, they're having trouble breaking Mr. Braxton's alibi. Uh, you might have heard that. You know he's been released, right, Frank? I want to run another thought by you, and I want you to try to be clear-headed about it like you were on Braxton. Uh, let's just say it wasn't that figure you saw in the darkness who left that note jammed under the office door, okay? Well, you're the second one to arrive here. Someone else was here before you got here. Harry? Well, you were around back of the filling station. Harry got to the office first, opened the door, come inside alone, right? Well, yeah. He'd have to, I guess. And he knew he was alone. He knew you weren't here to see what he was doing, correct? He could have done anything. Now, if he wrote out that note before you two came to the station, he could have put it there himself. And you wouldn't have known about it. You kind of get where I'm going here. I'm just putting it out there, Frank. Is it possible? Well... I know Harry's a friend of yours, like Braxton, but just think about it. Is it possible? And remember, you said that note was all crumpled up from being jammed underneath the door, right? How could Harry unlock that door, push the door open, and not hear the paper rustling? And not stepped on it like you did when you came in after? I never thought of that. And him, not seeing that figure, whether or not it was actually Braxton on the side of the station, there was a moon out that night, right? I mean, Harry's not an old man with night blindness. If you could see something, he could have seen something. Unless, maybe he didn't want to see. It makes me think he could possibly have had someone helping him. The kidnappers sometimes have partners. I'm sure you know that. Uh, sure. Mm, well... Well, Harry tried to tell you you were just seeing things. Or tried to dissuade you, talk you out of running to investigate things. Or chasing that fella, even though everyone in town's been talking about this kidnapping from the first... You probably didn't think about it then, but doesn't that seem a little strange to you? Well, I... I guess, Harry? Uh, Frank, I'm just speculating here, but I'm taking you to my confidence. I expect you to keep that confidence. Do I have your word, boy? Not a word to Harry or anyone else. I promise, Sheriff. Uh, well, we're going to be taking a long, close look at Harry Wright. And you're the man who can provide invaluable assistance in this case, Frank. If it comes to it, all you got to do is be accurate, be impartial, and tell the truth. Can you do that? Sure thing, Sheriff. Not a word. I promise. Good boy. Uh, you're a good man, McCall. The wily sheriff didn't think Franklin McCall was a good man at all. He thought he was a kidnapper. 
maybe even a killer. But the cocky McCall was flattered by all the attention. He also enjoyed the VIP treatment the feds gave him a day or so later, shuttling him up to their field office in Miami on the pretense of seeking his help. But his arrogance turned to alarm when he realized it wasn't Frampy Braxton or Harry Wright the feds were after. Sheriff, thanks for joining us. I'll be heading up this interview, and I'm hoping that between the three of us, you, myself, and the main eyewitness, Mr. McCall, we can iron out the inconsistencies surrounding the third ransom note found at the filling station and give this case a new direction. What inconsistencies? Oh, now, not with you, Frank. Your account of events is the only thing that has remained consistent. It's everything else keeps changing. Like what? Well, did Harry Wright change his story? You've talked to him, I suppose. Uh, like you said, Sheriff, I can't fully vouch for him that night. Well, yeah, Wright's story is presenting problems. Now, for starters, he said, and you corroborated it the other night, that the position of the moon when you arrived at the station, you said it was one, two hours past midnight, was over the tree line in the west, about where it was the night I met you boys out there. Well, did you notice? At that angle, the side of the filling station where that man was lurking was completely in the shadow of the structure. Well, at first, we wanted to think that Wright might be trying to distract you. Now, telling you he didn't see anyone over there. But how could anyone see anyone in that darkness? Especially with the headlights of your truck still lit and pointed in the opposite direction. And Wright wasn't consistent about the yard in the rear of the filling station. You said it was pitch dark when you ran after that figure, which is why you couldn't find him. Or else you would have apprehended him, correct? Uh, I would if I'd seen him. But with the angle of the moon in the sky and the building not blocking the moonlight, the yard would have been lit up pretty well. Well, I, I guess he could have made it out to the trees before I got there, or maybe hid in the grass or something. It, it was kind of dark. Uh, now, here is the big obstacle, Frank. Harry wasn't clear on this. Maybe you can be. Bailey Cash left his home and his car at midnight to make his first try to deliver the ransom money. Well, right. I was with a bunch of fellas in the street when he pulled away. Then I went home to bed. Right. And that makes sense. But what we can't figure out is this. Now, the kidnapper didn't show for that first drop-off. His next note said there were too many people around, spies, he called them. So the third note said for Mr. Cash to try again at 4 a.m. when everyone was gone home and to take the same route. You read that letter after you found it, right? Well, sure, but, uh, but I'm not getting you. Well, think about it. The Sinclair filling station closed at 9 o'clock that night every night, and it wasn't going to open again till 7 the next morning. Everyone in town knows the hours and they're posted on the station's door. Uh, of course, uh, so... Now, Frank, think about it. Why would the kidnapper leave that note at the filling station after closing time, late at night, after he didn't meet Mr. Cash the first time? And the note tells Cash to try again at 4 a.m., when the kidnapper must have known that the station would be closed all night long and no one would find the note until 7 a.m. Uh... uh... Gee, uh, yeah. But um, the kidnapper specified that particular time. Four o'clock in the a.m. after Mr. Cash had returned from the first attempt and could then go out and try the drop-off again. That's right. So the only way this makes sense is if the kidnapper left the note there because he knew someone would be open in the station in the early hours before 4 a.m. and could get the note to Bailey Cash. Either that or the kidnapper arranged for someone. 
in this case, you and Harry Wright, to go over to the filling station at that early hour. Are you following us on this, Frank? You told us you asked Harry Wright to open up the gas station so you could fill up your father-in-law's truck. You said that was the only way your father-in-law would let you borrow his truck. He did. He was low on gas. But you said Mr. Hilliard was home all night. His wife and some neighbors confirmed that. He's got that gimp leg, too. Walks with a cane. Couldn't be running around Princeton in the dark, even if he could have snuck out of the house without his wife knowing. You said it was you who got Harry to get in that truck and go open the pumps at the station for you. Remember, Frank? It was your idea. Mr. McCall, what's the real reason you went to the Sinclair filling station at that odd time of night? Now, be honest with us, Frank. Franklin Pierce McCall was squirming uncomfortably in the hot seat in front of the two investigators. And on the other side of the interrogation room's two-way glass, Special Agent Rutson and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover looked on. We got the son of a bitch! More than 50 bureau agents in town on the case, Agent Rutson. Best trained, best educated lawman in the country. So why did it take the local cracker sheriff to nail this bumpkin? Book me a flight back to Washington. I'll trust you can handle things on your own from here. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, it's best if you tell us the truth now, Frank. It, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. It was Asbury Cash, uh, Bailey's brother. It was his idea. Uh, he, he said I'd get half to take. Uh, all I had to do was write the notes and deliver them and pick up the money. He, he, he'd kidnap the boy and take care of the rest, hide the kid in some cabin someplace. Uh, that's some bitch. Uh, he's the one, Bailey's own brother. But the feds had interviewed Asbury Cash. They interrogated him again after McCall pinned the plot on him. But every minute of his whereabouts since the kidnapping was accounted for and corroborated. Asbury Cash had a wife and four children of his own to keep him busy. He adored his young nephew and would have had no place to secret him away and wait for ransom to be paid, money he didn't particularly need. Plus, Asbury Cash hated Frank McCall. But the G-Men let Frank McCall do what he did best, keep on talking. So if Asbury Cash, the boy's uncle, trusted you to make the ransom pickup while he held onto the boy, tell us how it happened. We know Bailey Cash left his home at exactly 4 a.m. and took the road south from town. What next? Uh, me and Harry brought the third note to the FBI agents who were set up in Bailey's house. Asbury told me to make sure the letter got into Bailey's hands. He, he was pushing that he wanted the money that night. We gave the feds the note, told them our story, and they said we could leave. What time was this? A little after three, maybe quarter past. I headed out to the old Chambers property on Sunset and Tallahassee Road, hid in the orange grove there. Asbury knew I didn't have no car, and I didn't want to be seen driving around in my father-in-law's truck. So we chose Chambers Grove, which was close by. Saw Bailey's car coming a little after four, I flashed the light, he left the money, drove off, and I took it. And did what with it, Frank? Did you spend it? I didn't have the chance. I knew I'd have to wait on that. M maybe a long time. Months, maybe years. I took 250 bucks out of the box to have some of it on me. Hid the rest in the field there near that rock fence along Sunset. And now, if I send my deputies out there, Frank, to that rock fence, will they find the money? $9,750 of it? If they look. Hidden in a hole, covered with weeds. But... Mr. McCall, if the money is hidden in the field, and if you knew and Asbury Cash knew that you couldn't spend the money for months or years until after the heat was off, why was Cash pushing so hard for the money that night? Uh, uh, he... And Frank, 
You had several days after the ransom was paid. If Asbury Cash was so frantic to get his hands on his half of the money, why did you hide almost the entire take and not give Cash his half? So that he could then have released the boy? It was about then that Franklin McCall quit talking, at least for the time being. He'd woven quite a yarn, and none of it made any sense. Within an hour, the Fed sent a team to the Chamber's property in Princeton. They found the rock wall along Sunset Drive, and in a weed-covered hole in the dirt was the box containing $9,750. Frank McCall had at least been truthful about that much. But the most important aspect of the case was still open. Where was five-year-old little Skiggy? For now, let's leave it there. We'll find out Skiggy's fate and Franklin McCall's involvement on the next episode of Murder, Mischief, and Mayhem. Murder, Mischief, and Mayhem is an anthology of our rich American heritage of scandal, mystery, and murder, revived from the faded pages of history. You can find Murder, Mischief, and Mayhem on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Created and written by Justin Vior. Narrated by Kevin Silva. Produced by Ed Adler and Ken Yaz. Direction and casting by David Rosenthal. Sound design and music score by Ray Soldick. Script supervision by Stephen Glennon and Maria Norris. This podcast is dedicated to the memory and inspiration of Dr. W. Keith Krauss. Murder, Mischief, and Mayhem is the property and production of Ed and Ken's Excellent Adventure, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>